0: We're working through a series, 15 Protestant truths about the death of God the Son. And and this is week 10 of this study. Jesus Christ died on the cross to free us from the bondage of both our ancestry and our environment. And I want to show you where I get this insight. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, 17, 18, 19. 1 Peter 1, 17, 18, and 19. Peter writes to these persecuted Christians. And he says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's the time... Peter assumes you and I are living in. We are, you heard a lot on the news, here we are as we are refugees here. This is not home. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing, so understanding something is going to help us conduct ourselves with fear. ...knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways... ...inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things... ...such as silver or gold... ...but with the precious blood of Christ... ...like that of a lamb... ...without blemish or spot. I'd like to submit to you that this text opens up another window... Uh, ...in this series of teachings... ...on the accomplishments... ...of the Messiah... ...Christ Jesus... ...God the Son... ...as He died for us on the cross. Peter means for us... ...to see three thoughts... ...chained together... ...linked together... ...in this text. First there's the gracious privilege... ...of calling upon the creator of the universe... ...and all that is in it... ...calling him our father. If you come... ...if you call on him as father... ...verse 17. That's the first thought. Then, second... ...there's this command... ...as to the kind of conduct required... ...if we are so to address God as our father. He says... Verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear. I mean, you can teach a budgie to call God father. But there's a lifestyle, Peter says, that has to go along with the calling on God as father. That's a privilege. And in that privilege, there is assumed uh, a lifestyle that goes along with it. I said there were three thoughts linked together in these verses. But the idea just presented in these first two thoughts is is profound. Peter seems concerned to make the point that we Christians never use our closeness to God as father. That we would never use that to cause us to treat him with presumption or familiarity. I mean the fatherhood of God doesn't remove the fear of God, as though this newfound status through Christ is just an excuse we can get away with moral indulgence because, well, after all, he's Father God, not Judge God, not Creator God, not wrathful God. He's Father God, not holy God. He's Father God. So so we're in, we're tight, we're close, we're loved. And so Peter seems to have the concern that this presumption of family embrace might make us not so concerned about holy living. The fact that we now belong is not meant to remove the need for reverence. Peter actually uses the word fear and holiness. I said there was a third thought... ...and it's where I want to kind of bed down... ...and spend a little more time tonight. Peter describes the provision... ...that makes this lifestyle of holiness... ...of fearing Father God... ...of walking in righteousness... ...he describes a provision... ...that makes this possible... He says that through Christ's death, this is in verse 18, we have been redeemed from the, quote, futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So we call on him as father. Precious privilege, that is. That doesn't make us morally lax or indifferent. We walk in holiness and uprightness. And the provision for that, in verse 18, is we have been redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And that phrase strikes me as fascinating. It's the one we want to concentrate on this evening. Peter says, live your life here in the fear of God. Be totally different from the citizens of this world around you. Live like refugees. Live like sojourners. Live like strangers. All those words are used in the New Testament. ...live like people with a totally different lineage. People who have their citizenship somewhere else. And don't think for a minute... ...that you can't do this. And then comes our phrase. You can live holy lives... ...because you have been redeemed... ...from the futile way of life... ...you inherited from your forefathers. Now... My question is why why does Peter under divine inspiration of the holy spirit why does he word it this way why doesn't he just say you've been redeemed from your sins i mean that phrase is used all over the new testament what's he getting at why doesn't he just say you've been redeemed from your past you've been redeemed from your guilt why this very carefully crafted mention of the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. And where I want to go tonight in this series of applying precious benefits of Christ's death on the cross. Is, is I believe Peter is being very intentional in his choice of words here in, in showing A very deliberate blessing that's tailored to meet a very common excuse for people not pursuing holiness in certain areas of their lives. We all know about sin. We all know sin is bad. We all know we're not supposed to do sin. We even know what specific sins are. Uh, People who think lists of right and wrong are legalistic and have no spiritual value, you really need to rewrite a bunch of your New Testament. Because, unfortunately, those kind of lists are all over the epistles. Don't do this, or this, or that, or that. Here's some works of the flesh. There's this one, there's this one, there's that one, there's that one. So... Simply put, we we know what the New Testament means when it talks about sin, because most of the time, it tells us the sins. Really specifically. So so Peter isn't repeating the same process here. He's not outlining the kinds of sins these people might commit. Rather, he's addressing the process of how we explain, and how we sometimes justify the sins we commit. Not all of them, of course, but certain ones for sure. And he tells us that if we're going to live holy lives here on earth, if we're going to live beautiful, radiant, whole lives, which is what the Bible means when it talks about the fear of God, if we're going to live lives like that, we're going to have to resist... A specific kind of unbelief. And that's what Peter's addressing here. A specific kind of unbelief that most commonly shuts God's grace and power out of our hearts. And that's what we're going to look at. So, point number one the sins we justify the most are the sins we tie to our heredity or our environment. We all know there are certain sins we don't even try to excuse. If we're serious about following Jesus at all, we just admit we've blown it, we repent with broken hearts, and he's gracious and he forgives, and that's just a miracle of grace. There are other sins which don't receive the same kind of healing grace in our hearts, not because God won't restore with his power and mercy, but because we haven't yet come to the place of One of two things. We haven't come to the place of believing God's assessment of these things as actual sins. Or, just as commonly, we really don't think there's any hope for transformation in these areas anyway. And so we just quietly settle for less transformation than the Spirit of God would like to bring into our hearts. And that's what concerns me tonight. Let me give you examples of the kind of things I hear in my office all the time quote you don't understand Pastor Don I find it hard to be a loving person to my wife my father beat me as a child and I'm so full of anger and hatred I'm just this way because of my upbringing if you knew my past Pastor Don you'd never ask me to forgive that person I've had such a hard walk People have been taking advantage of me all my life. I just have no forgiveness left to give anymore. And if you walked in my shoes, you wouldn't even expect it of me. Quote, I find it so hard to trust anyone, Pastor Don. Two people have sued me for things I didn't do. My wife walked out on me for another man after 20 years of marriage. How can I ever trust anyone again? Surely God can't expect that. Quote. It's impossible for me to control my temper. I try, Pastor Don. My dad blew up at me all the time. His dad did the same with him. It's just the way I respond to stress. I guess it's just in my blood. I could pile up examples, but you start to see the point. The one thing in common with all those explanations is this. There's a sinful pattern of behavior that isn't being broken by the power of God because... It isn't being called sinful by the individual. And the reason it isn't being called sinful is... ...it's being linked to a way of life... ...inherited from their forefathers. It's just the way I am. And I don't actually expect to ever be any different. This is just just in my makeup... If they robbed a bank, they'd confess and say they were sinners. Now, please hear again Peter's words, and maybe with a fresh edge to them. You have been redeemed from the futile way of life, handed down from your forefathers. Now, we don't use those words, of course, anymore. We've Refine them we've modernized the terms but the mindset is still the same whether you speak of a futile way of life handed down by your forefathers or whether you speak of genetic dysfunctional influence or whether you speak of the emotional scarring of codependent emotionally distant parents I know that's not all Peter is talking about in that text ...but I don't think it violates the text at all... ...to say that these are some of the roots of bondage Peter references in these verses. And and he says that the cross of Christ has a message of hope and deliverance... ...but it has to be received with faith and commitment to the grace of God. Those are the sins that take the deepest root. They are the ones that we find it hardest to confess as sins... And they are the ones we find it hardest to believe God could ever change anyway. The ones that seem to compose our makeup. Okay, point number two. The New Testament calls us to believe that through Christ's death on the cross... This is really important to me. Our past need no longer determine our destiny... Our past need no longer determine our destiny. Now, the first thing Peter actually says is that these chains of bondage can't be broken with silver or gold. That's in verse 18. You might wonder why he says this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Why those words? Probably because... For most of us, in the western world at least, silver and gold, our currency, our wealth, our material status is is what we immediately look to as the solution to most of our problems. And that's why, before Peter tells us what will bring freedom and transformation, he tells us what won't. Ask any pastor. I counsel as many Rich people is poor. More, probably. And it's true. Wealth can provide some earthly comfort, some insulation from the pain of the past and some temporary distraction from it. But silver and gold can't heal one broken heart or set free one single life. The Bible says you just can't throw money at this problem. And then Peter holds out a promise. It's a promise that were it not offered by the Spirit of God himself, would be too precious for belief. He says, God has redeemed us, set us free from the futile way of life, handed down by our forefathers. In fact, when you look at it, you will everywhere see this expansive power of deliverance assumed in the teaching of the New Testament. I mean, here's a verse. Is that Ephesians 4? 32 to 5.1. Is that in your notes? Okay, keep your eyes on that because we're going to be looking at it a little bit here and then a little bit in the next point as well. In fact, let's read it together. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now notice, before we start to pick this apart, and we're well over halfway down, I won't be real long tonight. But I wanted this thought to get home. Notice the breadth of this command. The command is to be tender-hearted. Now think about that for a minute. How can you command someone to become tender-hearted? I mean, I can command someone to hold their temper. I can command someone to not strike back. I can even command someone just to be quiet if I have that kind of authority over them. But the heart. It's an amazing command, isn't it? To to tell someone to be tender-hearted. And it never even enters Paul's mind that someone might say... Well, it's well and good for you to say this, Paul, but I'm not a tender-hearted person. I've, I've walked through glass all my life. My dad was an alcoholic. My mother left me when I was a kid. I've been passed around like useless goods for most of my life. I'm the product of abuse and neglect. Life has made me hard-hearted, not tender-hearted. And I wouldn't argue for one minute you know, that your life hasn't been difficult, that situations can be hard, that life can be unfair. God is good, and life is unfair. Hold those two things together all the time. God is good, life is not fair. And I don't know why some people's lives seem harder than others. And I'm not denying the kind of pain and agony that people feel, and I wouldn't want to be insensitive to it. But I know this. Peter says that there has come... Through the cross. We're going to gather around the table tonight. And Peter says that there has come, through the cross, a redemption from the futility of anyone's past. That's a huge promise. Point number three. God's command always carries with it God's enablement. In other words, God's command is never just bare command. God doesn't just command and then stand back and watch. God's words, unlike ours, God's words never just leave his mouth, I'm speaking metaphorically, God's a spirit, but God's Words never just leave his mouth and kind of hang in thin air. God's words suspend galaxies. God's words hang planets and stars with nothing to hold them up. God's words tell the sun to get up in the morning. And rain to come on the earth. God's words created all sorts of creature life on this planet... ...with nothing more than speaking it. In other words, His spoken command... ...always carries His power. Now, look at that Ephesians text again... ...just as an example. Ephesians 4.32-5.2 And I want you to see... ...what I want you to see is we pick these verses apart really quickly is how you have the command and then you have the ability to obey the command put right after it. So if I were reading Ephesians 4.32-5.2 I would read it like this. Be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another. That's command right? Pretty clear. As God in Christ forgave you That's the source of power for obeying that command. Therefore, be imitators of God. Another command. As beloved children. That's the source of power for obeying that command. And walk in love. That's the command. As Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, ...a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's the source of power for obeying that command. I'm using that text just as an example... ...because it it seems to fit in so well... ...with the theme of the transformation of settled... ...what many would call inherited traits of character. To command a change of heart... It's a command to be changed in areas that are so clearly perceived as being matters of attitude, of temperament, of disposition. In other words, that's a classic example, that Ephesians passage, because it deals so specifically with the very things we usually say are set into place by forces beyond our control. You're either a tender-hearted person or you're not. You're either a patient person or you're not. Peter would say, not anymore. Not anymore. Since you've been redeemed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers. Jesus died on the cross to redeem us from areas we perceive as being just areas of futility. Hopelessness. Point number four. Peter writes to Christians about this very specific power of the cross to call them away from a very common form of unbelief. That's what it is. Unbelief. There are two kinds of unbelief. One is probably not practiced by anyone in this room. And the other is, at certain seasons, practiced by almost everyone in this room. There's the unbelief of rejection. And there's the unbelief of reason. The unbelief of rejection. It just flat out denies and rejects Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Just rejection. Then there's the unbelief, not of rejection, but that simply finds something that God has said, God has promised to ...hard to be expected. You get an example in Mark 9... ...20 to 24. They brought the boy to him... ...and when the spirit saw him... ...immediately it convulsed the boy... ...and he fell on the ground... ...and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father... ...how long has this been happening? He said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire... ...and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything... ...have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, what I would have said, I, I believe. And then he thinks about it and he goes, help my unbelief. So, so the first step to experiencing God's transforming grace for a futile past, the first step is to believe that the power of the cross of Christ reaches into that past with a power that no amount of silver or gold can buy. ...it reaches back into the past. Something happened on that cross... ...when Jesus died on the cross... ...that is big enough... ...to do more with your past... ...that you can't even reach into anymore. We have been redeemed... ...not just from our present... ...and not just our future... ...but from all of what makes us... ...who and what we are. It all comes under the power of the cross of Christ... that not good news is that not good news we're not just earthlings trying to copy a good god if that's what we're trying to do we ought to be at home barbecuing right now that's a hopeless endeavor we are now we are now god's children John says God's seed abides in us. That means, that means, here's as clear as I can say it. God himself is now the most decisive factor in making us all that we should be. But that truth has to be believed in the heart and relied upon in faith... ...before it becomes transforming in your own experience. It doesn't just sit there. It has to be believed. Your earthly upbringing may have been tragic... I'm not in any way minimizing all the pain that that can bring into a life. But the gospel says, listen to me, the gospel says God starts something brand new when it enters your life. That's why it says we are new creation. I'm not saying there aren't things to overcome. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen over time. But what I'm saying is, it happens. And you have to believe that it happens. Your past is no longer the determining factor in your future. And I think that's part of what Jesus meant. In a very tricky verse, when you read the commentaries, they really have no idea what to do with it. In Matthew 23, 9, Jesus speaks and he says, And call no man your father. ...on earth, you have one Father who is in heaven. What's that all about? I know Jesus is addressing this idea of the way people can set up as idols... ...religious offices and titles. It's very common in the world today. But I just wonder... ...if another point of application might not be the exact passage we're studying tonight. As important as earthly fatherhood is... And it is, in the New Testament, very important. There are still countless people... ...who will come to Jesus Christ later on in life. They may have had everything... ...going against them... ...in terms of earthly heritage. And the principle... ...the liberating biblical principle is... ...the fatherhood of God... ...overrides all other factors... in determining what you can become... ...by faith and obedience to the Lord. Paul describes the faith of Abraham and he outlines how God works in performing all that he commands. He says, God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Romans 4, 17. Remember it all the days of your life. Think about it every time you come to the table because you have been adopted into a new family, because you call God your father, our earthly backgrounds are no longer our destinies. And everyone said...